Good evening. My name is Noelin. I'm a member here, and I'll be reading our scripture passage for tonight from Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 14. If you'd like a copy of the Bible, we have um, blue Bibles at the front. Feel free to grab one and keep it as a gift to you. Again, I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. So please read along with me. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Nolan. Well, good evening, Doxology. It is good to be with you. For those of you who are new, a warm welcome to you. My name is Steve, and we're really glad you're here. Um, As we start this evening, uh, I do have an apology uh, to make to you guys, and the timing of this is odd because this happened three weeks ago, and then we had a snow day, and then we had guest Pastor Paul come last week, and so this is the first time I've been up here. Um, But the last time I was up here preaching, uh, at the start of the sermon, I made an off-the-cuff joke that was immature. And, you know, whether you remember that or not, whether you've forgotten about it by now or not, uh, it's not a, it wasn't a fitting thing to say as one of your pastors. And so uh, I just wanted to ask for your all's forgiveness. Um, You know, the preaching of the word, you know, we don't, we don't want to be unnecessarily heavy, uh, but at the same time, you know, we want to honor what we're doing up here. So yeah, I just wanted to say, I'm sorry, ask for you guys to forgive me for that. And um, yeah, that would be awesome. So, and if you want to talk about it further, then happy to. So, uh, and this passage is about guilt, so how about that in, uh, in chapter 9? So, uh, yeah, so the book of Hebrews, uh, the summary of Hebrews is persevere, draw near, do it together. And the focus of chapter 9 looks at why can we draw near to God through Jesus? And you'll notice all this talk about blood. Uh, we saw it also in chapter 10 last week, so we had to flip chapter 10 and chapter 9 because Paul was scheduled last week. Uh, but for three chapters, it essentially talks about this idea of blood and atonement. And for some people, maybe for some of you here, this is one of the problems people have with the Bible. 
because I, I've had people say to me something like, all right, yeah, the Bible talks a lot about, you know, loving your neighbor and so forth, but there's also a lot in the Bible about these bloody sacrifices, and that seems barbaric to me. And that's a good question, and since the scriptures talk about it, and it's in this passage, we don't want to ignore it or sweep it under the rug. We want to look at it because it's here for a reason. And when you think about what blood is an indicator of, it's obviously an indicator of pain and death, right? That immediately comes to mind. Yet blood is also a sign of life. So you think if you've ever been in a delivery room when a child is being born, there's a lot of blood everywhere. Uh, But yet it's an indicator that new life is in the world. And that's the flow of this passage. The first 10 verses are the more, quote, negative part. Um, about pain and death and the needs that we have. And then the second part, verse 11 through 14, is about the life that we're given in Jesus. And so that's the outline we'll use for today. Uh, First, we'll look at three needs we have that's symbolized by blood. Uh, Second, we'll look at the solution given to us in Jesus. And then finally, we'll see the difference that this makes in our lives. Uh, So the three needs we have that blood points to, the solution given us in Jesus that blood also points to, and then the difference that this makes in our lives. So first, uh, number one, the three needs that we have. So verse one through five describe the layout of the tabernacle. This was the movable tent that God gave the Israelites after the Exodus through which he could dwell with them. And there were three sections in this tent. You had an outer courtyard, and then within the courtyard, you you had a two-section tent, which had the holy place and then the most holy place in it. And the further you, the closer you got to the most holy place, the more sacrifices that had to be made because you're getting closer to the presence of God. And see what it says here, because these blood sacrifices that you had to make that came from the life of animals had to be made, and they point to three needs that we have that we see in this passage. So the first need we see is in verse 9. According to this arrangement, you know, talking about the sacrificial system, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And so what we see here is the first need we have as humans is a perfected conscience, i.e. a clean conscience or a guilt-free conscience. What verse 9 is saying is it's, this wasn't just true for Old Testament Israel or for the audience of Hebrews in the first century, but every single human being, like we all have this sense that we're not fit for close examination by someone. We all have this unsettling sense that if somebody, if you were to be laid fully bare, your body, your being, and somebody were to to examine all of your motives, all of your actions, all of your thoughts, you'd be ashamed. And what we do is a way to try to, um, you know, to, to deal with this sense, right? If someone were to really see who we are, all of us, you know, part of us would be rejected or at least looked on with, you know, eyebrows raised in some way, is we try to atone. So Old Testament Israel, they atone through sacrifice. We atone through other means. So this may look passive. Uh, so an example of this would be uh, if you've seen episode eight, I think it's called The Last Jedi of Star Wars. You know, so Luke Skywalker Right, he fails his apprentice, Kylo Ren, who goes to the dark side and, you know, kills a bunch of Jedi and so forth. And because Luke is so guilt-ridden, because he failed his apprentice, he goes emo and he exiles himself, right, to this island. And what he's doing there is he's, he's essentially working atonement, right, for failing his apprentice. And some of you in this room are probably like that, where it might just be a nagging sense that you're not enough, uh, or it might be a specific act that you did, 
you will quote atone by sulking. Um, maybe you're you're the type of person who not this has ever happened to me. You you're laying in bed at night thinking about a conversation you had, and you're like, oh my gosh, that person probably thinks I'm so annoying. Everybody probably, probably thinks I'm the most uninteresting person in the world, right? And so you, you, may, you might remove yourself from people. That's a passive way of atoning. Or your atonement project might look more active. So another example from cinema would, would be Spider-Man. So if either, I think there's how many Spider-Man movies have been made in the last two decades, but at least the one I first saw, the one with Tobey Maguire, right? So toward the beginning of him having his powers, he lets a, a thief go, and then due to a result of him not stopping this thief, the thief goes on to be involved with the murder of his Uncle Ben. And because that happened, guilt is driving Peter Parker throughout the whole rest of his life, essentially, because after his uncle gets killed, he says, you know, I'm never going to let an innocent person suffer again if I can help it. And so guilt drives him to do lots of good things to protect innocent people, but it's essentially one long atonement project. And others of you here might be like that, where, you know, you might work really hard or do a lot of good things for the church or for other people. But what's going on there underneath is the sense of if I do enough, if I'm praised enough, then I know I am enough. You see, with both of these cases, whether we sulk in our passive or we're more active and work a lot to atone for the sense of, you know, something's not right with us, both of these are means of going regularly into the, into the tabernacle, verse 6, and regularly, repeatedly offering sacrifices that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Okay, so this is our first need to have a clean conscience, a guilt-free conscience. Second need, and this is our, our deepest need and often why we, we feel guilty. Uh, we see this in verse 7. Uh, but into the, sex, the second section, the most holy place, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And then if you look at verse 22, it wasn't in the reading, but it's just after our section. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so here, what God has set up is a clear link between blood and forgiveness of sins. And the reason for this is because when you see blood, you know something serious has happened. Okay, if a child is doing something, they fall, they might be fine until they look down and they see what? Blood, right? Because it means something serious has happened. And one of the reasons why sin is so serious, um, not just because it wrongs other people, although it does, not because anytime we sin, it actually warps our humanity in some way, although it does, the reason why sin's most serious is because it's inherently relational. It's not just—it's not mainly about even the more superficial behaviors, but it's a deeper relational issue that's going on. And so here's an example of that. So say, say one afternoon I head out of my home to meet one of you guys around 3 p.m. And as I'm heading out, you know, Kelsey's my wife. She's with the kids. She says, hey, Steve, it'd be really great if you could be home by 5 p.m. tonight, you know, so that I can X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. And I go, yep, sure, got it, no problem. So I head out, I meet, but I don't roll home until 9 p.m. And I just roll on home, and I met with that look. And, you know, I know she's upset with me, and so I just go, you know, the meeting ran a little late, and then on my drive home, you know, some of my buddies called me, and they were going out for really good drinks and food, and it was just too good to pass up, but I'm here now, I'm sorry, can we move on? 
she's not going to be pleased with that. And why is that? Because it's not so much the superficial behavior of doing a long meeting or going out for drinks and food, right? But anyone looking at that situation can say, there is something deeply wrong about this relationship, i.e., you know, my actions revealed uh, an indifference, and it would even go so far to say a disdain for the person who's pledged her life to me. And so it is with God. See, when we sin, which is anything, you know, outside of God's character, um, what it reveals is an indifference, and even more than that, a, a potent disdain for the one who made us. If you exist, you owe that to the Lord. And him giving up his only son for you. And so this is why sin is so serious. And all of us have this indifference, you know, whether you're a Christian or not. And for those of you, you may be exploring the faith, and you may have a question, something to the effect of, you know, I'm a pretty good person, and I don't understand why I have this need that Christians keep saying for Jesus to die and rise again for me. And you may be a great person, probably better than me, and I'm serious. But hopefully this helps you see that if you are, even if you're a great person, it's not so different from you being married to someone and then leaving your home and doing a lot of good things for other people while completely disregarding your spouse at home. See, if you're not orbiting your life around the Lord who made you and gave up his only son for you, it's the, it's the same thing. And so this is why we need Jesus to come to atone for this deep, the deepest wrong. Okay, so that, that's the, this is the second need that, that blood points to. Okay, our need for forgiveness and freedom from sin. And then finally, number three, what's the third need that blood points to? And we're going to go back to verse 9, and let's look at this phrase again. Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So we said perfecting a conscience can mean a clean conscience or a guilt-free conscience, but think about what it can also mean. To have a perfect conscience— uh, Sorry, John, your drum is, like, encroaching on me, by the way. I keep wanting to walk. Sorry. <laughs> Just getting distracted. Uh, it's great, though. Please keep it there. Um, where were we? Perfected conscience. It can also mean a softened or attuned conscience to where you become, or an awakened conscience, where you become more aware of God's character, and so you become more joy-filled when you're walking in line with it, and you're more quick to feel guilty when you're not walking in line with God's character. And this, this idea of actually needing to be softened to feeling more guilty when we walk out of line with God's character, that might seem strange, especially we live in a cultural moment where both those in and outside of the church, you hear things like, you know, guilt is bad, shame is bad. Uh, a number of people in the church have even told you, yeah, I no longer feel guilty about these things, and I, I'm so free. And, but think about this, um, and actually, uh, Paul, you'll notice there's a lot of themes here from last week's sermon and this week's sermon. I promise I'm not copying Paul. I wrote this three weeks ago. Okay, but an example he gave when it came to this idea of just suppressing guilt. He shared this example of a number of years ago when he was counseling a couple, and in this case, it was the wife. She had cheated on her husband for not the first time, and they're in this counseling session together, and the, the man starts crying, and his spouse looks over at him and goes, will you be a man and just grow up a little bit? And, you know, I think anyone looking at that can see, you know, when you, when you so adopt the approach of, 
Um, you know, if it feels right, how can it be so wrong? There comes a point where it actually begins to destroy your humanity and calcify your conscience, you know, both in the ways that you treat God and other people. And so, in a sense, it's actually, now, is it healthy to swim in guilt, okay, whether it's just or unjust? No, because in Jesus, there's no condemnation, okay? However, to, to be quicker to feel guilt when we have indifference toward God or walk out of line with his, with his character is a healthy thing because in the gospel, guilt is actually a mechanism for your protection and for your humanity, and its purpose is to draw you into deeper wholeness in life with Christ. And this is strange to us. I think, like, I think this is why Hebrews takes three chapters to talk about this, you know, guilt, because we just, we don't, either we wallow, we, you know, are actively trying to atone for ourselves, or, you know, we, we have uh, this idea of just guilt can't possibly be good. And even our culture right now, it's interesting, you see a lot of kind of like religious language where people use to call people to own guilt. And this was, there's, this was a couple months ago, I saw this video circulating of, there was a, a protest, uh, I think it was outside of Netflix, and protesters were coming to protest something that had taken place, and there's a counter-protester standing there defending Netflix's, uh, Netflix's position, and the protesters end up getting in this gentleman's face, tearing down his sign, and then someone gets in his face and says, shouts, repent, you bleep! And you know, that, that language is repent, right? That sounds a lot like what Jesus says in Mark chapter 1. But what's going, when that person called the other to repent, what would have happened if that person repented or said, I'm sorry? Probably what the person on the other side of the, the line wanted was for, for them to feel vindicated and for them to own their guilt. Why, though? You know, for restoration? No, so they could probably just be canceled or so they could nurse their wounds, there's no forgiveness there. There's no care there. There's no hope for restoration there. But Jesus, what does he say? He doesn't say, repent, you bleep. He says, repent and believe. <laughs> repent and believe that as serious and as large as your sin and guilt is, my supremacy and my sufficiency is far greater. And that leads to verse 11 to 14. Okay, so verse 1 through 10 shows us our need. Verse 11 through 14 shows us the solution that Jesus gives us. So let's read this again. But when Christ appeared, so this is like the futility of blood sacrifice through with animals to try to atone for guilt. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. That's heaven. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God." And so what's going on here is an argument from the lesser to the greater. And so it's talking about the blood of goats and bulls. And what it's saying is, while the blood of goats and bulls and you know, the ceremonial washings that Old Testament Israel did, they did symbolically cleanse people to go into the presence of God. What Hebrews is saying is they couldn't 
actually clean your conscience. They couldn't actually soften your conscience. They couldn't actually forgive you. Of course not. If you, say you get home from church and you, you catch someone robbing your apartment and they go, don't worry, on my way home, I'm going to slaughter a goat. You go, that's not going to work, <laughs> right? Because the slaughtering of animals can't forgive sins. Justice has to be paid. But however, what the animals and the blood sacrifices were useful is a symbol for something far greater, Okay, because some things look big, i.e. our guilt and sin, until you see something bigger. So uh, recently I looked at this recent uh, data that says in order for a family of four, uh, two parents, two children, to live comfortably in Northern Virginia, they need $9,500 a month. I don't know if that's pre-tax or post-tax. I don't know what living comfortably means. Either way, that's absolute lunacy. However, if you were to live on the International Space Station for a month, it would cost $204 million. Suddenly, $9,500 does not seem so bad to live in this area for a family of four. In the Chesapeake Bay, there are 18 trillion gallons of water. That's a lot of water. In the Pacific Ocean, there's 187 quintillion gallons of water. I don't know what that means. I think it's 18 zeros after the 187. It makes my heart constrict to think about the size of the sea. The point is, some things look big until you see something bigger. And your sin and guilt are serious, or maybe even your pain and suffering are serious. But Jesus' present help for you and his sufficiency and supremacy are far greater. And so when we see here, how do we deal with guilt? Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? And so what Jesus does is... When he goes to the cross, he offers himself without blemish, i.e. the only innocent and fully beautiful person to ever live. And on the cross, he is fully seen and closely examined. And he is utterly ashamed and completely condemned. Because what he's doing is objectively dealing with your guilt. And then he rises again, and a picture that the scriptures does to talk about like what this should feel like for us, it's not meant to make us feel more guilty. In Micah 7, God makes a promise, and he says, I will again have compassion on you, I will tread your iniquities underfoot, and I will hurl all your sin into the depths of the sea. Isn't that a great picture? It's a promise, centuries before Jesus, that Jesus will be so sufficient that through his, his death and through his life again and through him presently interceding for you right now and praying for you with nail-scarred hands, it's as if he swoops into the sanctuary of doxology and scoops up anything that's weighing you down in your shoulders, your sin, your guilt, your sense of inadequacy, and then takes it to the Atlantic and hurls it into the depths of the sea. 
and then comes back and brings you into the warmth of the living room with God, with God as your father, and Jesus is your big brother. And so if you are in Jesus, it means you are fully seen and closely examined and utterly praised. (laughs) It should sound impossible, but so it is. And what a solution we've been given in Jesus. And so what's the difference that this makes in our life? Uh, it's the entirety of the Christian life. Um, that, that's walking in the gospel, walking in light of this. Um, let's see what verse 14 says here, just looking at this text specifically. How much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offer himself without blemish to God. See, the entire trinity is involved in securing your eternal redemption. Purify our conscience from dead works. To what? to serve the living, the living God. And this is what I love about the dynamic of grace. Okay, it's not we work and work and work as an atonement project to be good for God or for other people or even ourselves. It's no secure in the love of God. We're now free to live for God. And so two encouragements for you all uh, as, we, as we look at this. So it says that when you've been secured by Jesus as a result of now living this full and free life with all our guilt hurled into the sea, this changes us that we serve the Lord. And so I just want to encourage you guys in two ways. Um, I was just telling someone this last night that in many ways our church cares for me and Kelsey more than we uh, care for you guys, and we meant it. And, you know, if you all, which almost all of you either are doing or in the process of beginning to do. If you're here and you're serving in some way, it might be you're a community group leader, discipleship group facilitator, you're on a Sunday service team, you're a ministry director, a team lead. If you give to this church, you're doing things even behind the scenes that I don't see. We're comforting other people. As you do that, that should give you assurance that you belong to Jesus. When you serve in those, it's not just you being a nice person, although you are. It's a sign that Christ himself, through the eternal spirit, offered himself to God without blemish for you and secured your eternal redemption. And so, you know, sometimes we can be so caught up in what we're doing that we forget about the reason we're doing it is because of a cosmic miracle that's already taken place. And so I I can't think of many more encouraging things to hear on a Sunday evening, uh, but that's what Hebrews 9 tells you. And then the second thing here, as we think about serving the living God, uh, one of the main ways that we serve God is through being his witnesses. And I'm not just making this up because this is our theme for 2022, although it is our theme for 2022, but, you know, Jesus' final words before he ascends— and Matthew 28 and Acts 1 are, be my witnesses. And you ever think about (laughs) why God, why Jesus chooses to use us to be his witnesses? I mean, to take off like the pastor hat, wouldn't it be just so much easier for Jesus not to use, like, of people who's so often believing and then rebelling and then believing again. And even when we're believing, we're more often getting in the way than helping. 
Like, he could just snap his fingers and redeem all the people who he's called to eternal redemption. And so why does he choose to use us? And I heard a story that, that helps with this. So this is a former teacher at our partner seminary, RTS, and he shared this story about how uh, he's got um, his wife and a few young kids, and one day he's working on a more complex IKEA furniture building project. If you know, you know. And he, his, one of his young children is helping him with the project. And in this case, what help looks like is this child is losing screws and misplacing the screwdriver and stacking wood where it's not supposed to go and just generally getting in the way. And he's starting to get irritated until finally his wife peeps her head around the corner and she looks at, you know, this father and child. And he says he just gives her this look that communicated, like, if you want this child to stay on this planet, you better remove them from this room. And all she does is she just gives him a knowing smile, and she says, this is what good fathers do. It's what good fathers do. And we have a good father who loves us beyond belief and has secured an eternal redemption for us and then invites us to participate with him as he builds his kingdom and so we get to work with dad. And you know what? I mean, I'm saying this more firsthand. Kids love to work with dad. <laughs> and so do we. And so if you're here, and as you think about being a witness, um, I think sometimes one of the ways you can make a Christian feel really guilty is ask them about their evangelism life. So if you're here, and you, you consider yourself as just one of the, the weakest witnesses you know, maybe you've never seen someone come to know Christ through talking with them. Uh, you're one of those people who every time you have a conversation, you either say things you wish you didn't or you don't say things you wish you did. The encouragement of this passage is that God has specifically created you to reach people in ways that I never can and in ways that the most winsome evangelist in the pew next to you never can. And as you simply just testify to how Christ has worked in your life this year to people, you're going to lose screws. You're going to misplace a screwdriver. You're going to put wood in places where it's just not supposed to go. But God doesn't get mad. No, he smiles, and then he takes your feeble efforts, and he finishes the project in such a way that at the end and beginning again of history— You'll get to look back, and I, I promise you, you'll see how he took your weakest efforts to testify to Jesus and draw people into his kingdom because that's what good fathers do. And so he is. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you're uh, a good dad, and uh, in ways that maybe none of us have ever experienced. And, um, Lord, there's a lot of people in here this evening with a lot of different backgrounds, and so wherever they're at with respect to anything that we looked at in Hebrews 9, uh, I pray that you will impress upon them anew the love of Christ. Thank you so much for the gift of him and in you who we get through him, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.